Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, which comes to you from the Australian National University. There's a line circulating on social media that says, if you ever feel useless, just remember the USA took four presidents, a trillion dollars, and 20 years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. By any measure, this was a colossal failure and one in which Australia was deeply involved. Three weeks on from the astonishingly swift fall of Kabul, what is known about the fate of Afghanistan's benighted people, particularly its girls and women? under the brutal, murderous control of the group many have dubbed Taliban 2.0. But Taliban 2.0 is a cruel joke, or perhaps a convenient lie to ease Western betrayal. Already music has been banned by these joyless fanatics and women are being forced back into the cage, as in the West, people of good conscience debate about how it could have been different. To discuss these matters, it's welcome back to Karen Middleton. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Mark. And it's also a welcome to the, for the first time to Garana Gurdjic. Uh, thank you for joining us, Garana. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Now, Karen Middleton is, as many of you will know, a former president of the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery. She's the chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper and a decade ago published a book on Afghanistan called An Unwinnable War. That's 10 years ago, so rather prescient, Karen. Well, it was controversial at the time. The, uh, the then Minister for Defence launched it claiming he didn't know what it was called when he agreed to launch it. He, he was courteous enough to launch it anyway, but it does look uh, a lot less controversial now, I guess. Yes, well, I can understand why a Defence Minister at that stage might not want to be making that declaration or being seen to be making that declaration, but uh, it does turn out to have been, as I say, quite prescient. And Dr. Gurana Gurcic is a lecturer at the Department of Government and International Relations at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. She's also a research fellow at the NATO Defence College and she's a regular public commentator. You've probably seen her on ABC and other networks. 
Rana, thanks, as I say, for, for joining us today. Perhaps I can start with you uh, and, and ask uh, just a sort of a, I guess it's a kind of a global question about the Afghanistan campaign. What was it all for? Yeah, um, 20 years have gone by. As you said, uh, the uh, mission, the goal was to depose Taliban, who were at the time providing safe harbor for and safe haven for Al-Qaeda. Um, and this was basically the first in the, the long campaign of the uh, global war on terror. And it seems now that we've we've gone through a couple of phases where it was first about uh denying this safe haven to extremism then it basically evolved into something uh that looked much like nation building which now everyone has been uh, very very uh, scathing of and especially coming from the United States that this was not supposed to be about nation building it was about uh, providing security for the United States uh, after 9-11 attacks and now uh, withdrawing as the U.S. public opinion as well as the elite consensus leans towards the end of these forever wars uh, as they are deemed um over or as they have been called um, for for the past twenty years, what uh, we are left with now are just uh, these tallies about the the immense humanitarian costs. Uh, as well as monetary costs, um, but also costs to America's uh, prestige, credibility, uh, reputation, and really uh, just the, the kind of viability of this model of the United States promotion of democracy through intervention in the years ahead, which Joe Biden has unequivocally stated that he is not going to be in the business of doing. Yes, Karen, uh, Karana makes the, the point about the original rationale. That rationale seemed to shift around a bit or at least take on different emphases at different times. There was that initial uh, thing about going after Osama bin Laden and the al-Qaeda leadership and uh, there was uh, also the, the, you know, the safe haven argument that... Uh, uh, and the staging ground argument that Afghanistan could be a place for you know global jihadists to train and and uh, and and wage war on the on the West on the US in particular um, and its allies um, and then Laura Bush and and George Bush uh, uh, emphasised very strongly uh, fairly early on also the the issue of um, the oppression of of girls and women, the, the, the brutal treatment that the Taliban meted out to Afghanistan's female population. Uh, and so it became about this sort of moral quest. Uh, I, I suppose these were the seeds of, of that argument. Garana also mentioned about, um, uh, you know, seeding uh, a democratic state or some sort of uh, peaceful civil society with rule of law and so forth, rolling all of that back, and and women, of course, were the the biggest victims of that. But it it, it, it became it's is there in a sense, you know, in all of this, uh, the seeds of failure are there just because of how unfocused and and how malleable the objectives were to begin with. I think the seeds of failure were there from the start. It's what the military calls mission creep. This constant redefining of why we were there because every time they set a target um, it took either a long time to reach or it wasn't reachable so they changed the target to something that was perhaps less measurable by hard and fast goals and deadlines but you know I've said this a number of times particularly lately you, you got the impression 
And I certainly got the impression when I started researching for my book more than 10 years ago that nobody in the Pentagon or the State Department or the, or the White House had read a history book. Um, I understood and I understand the need for vengeance and the, the sense of wanting to make someone pay for what happened to the United States. But there was very little historical contextual analysis of what they were planning to do in Afghanistan and what history had might have taught them about the the fate and the success rate of invasions by foreigners, by infidels as they were known, um, going back hundreds of years. The history is that they were never successful. And so I think there was an obligation on the United States and on Australia and the Allied forces to work out exactly uh, what they were seeking to achieve and, and to be more limited, more surgical, if you like, in, in what they were, uh, what their objectives were. And they were not that. And they had this creep. They, they went in in 2001. They, they claimed that they achieved some form of success in 2002. They hadn't got Osama bin Laden by then, but they'd got rid of the Taliban government. And they, they redefined their success measure and said, okay, we've achieved that because they started to be distracted by Iraq, by what turned out to be false intelligence in Iraq, um, by the, the hawks in the administration who had an unfinished agenda with Iraq, by the fear of another intelligence failure like the one that had occurred with the attacks on the United States in September 11. I think a whole lot of factors came to play. They took their eye off Afghanistan, they moved into Iraq, and then they had to go back because Afghanistan became unstable or, or was still unstable. And in 2005, they went back. And that's when the real redefining jumble of mission occurred. And then suddenly we were into nation building, which was what they always said they wouldn't be into, particularly the then Prime Minister John Howard was very clear. He didn't want to get into that, but suddenly that's where he was. And 20 years on from the start of this conflict, we're, we're now out and look at the mess we've created. And, and Garana, the, 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 in amongst all of that, there is that, uh, that thing about crushing the Taliban, the Taliban being regarded as a, um, a terrorist organisation, brutal and, and uh, inhumane in so many ways. And yet it ends up being the Taliban that, uh, that America deals with in order to negotiate its retreat and the retreat of its allies in in Afghanistan. I mean, it's uh, uh, that, that in itself is an extraordinary trajectory to go from having an objective of of, of, of removing the Taliban from power and and dethorning that uh, that that group as a, a threat to the people of Afghanistan and beyond that to the world, and then eventually doing a deal with the Taliban around the Afghan government that the US had helped install and protected and provided uh, uh, enormous resources to. So around the, um, behind the backs effectively of the Afghan government and without the involvement of women in those negotiations in any sort of serious way, uh, the Trump administration reaches an agreement after long negotiations with the Taliban. Yeah, it's uh, quite astounding actually to uh, to hear now these sort of debates about uh 
recognition of the Taliban as the legitimate government. Uh, obviously, the United States, we've heard uh, various reports about the CIA director Burns meeting with the leadership of the Taliban to coordinate uh, the airlifts in the, those last weeks uh, of, of U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. And it is, um, again, a kind of story of uh, the various analogies we've heard about Afghanistan and Vietnam and uh, basically the persistence of this group in fighting the insurgency over the past two decades and really um, just going back to what Karen was saying about history books and, and just lessons learned or not learned from the past is basically one, again, about U.S.'s ability to fight these asymmetric wars and also to under, underestimate the, the power of other nations' nationalisms, right? Because ultimately, this is one of the fights that has been presented through those lens uh, of liberating the country and the U.S., being seen basically as the occupier. Um, but um, in, in response to just the, the question about what um, the United States has been doing in its relations with uh, the Taliban, we can't uh, uh, discount the fact that uh, we have other uh, groups that are even more uh, heinous and, and horrible, like ISIS-K, obviously, that are operating there. And again, the uh, immense humanitarian toll that this leaves um, on on the Afghani uh, on the Afghan people, and that's uh, again something that uh, many in the U.S. have been saying that the United States should be uh, careful about and should uh, at least make notice of in terms of the the story of uh, belief in how important principles are in foreign policy, and it's something that's actually going to test Joe Biden as well, being that of of course his doctrine now, if it's emerging as such, is one that puts front the uh, idea that we have made a strategic kind of turn in U.S. foreign policy from the era of uh, combating transnational threats such as terrorism towards the great power rivalry. This is explained through that or uh, basically trying to do at least a bit of both, but also uh, emphasizing how important democratic regimes are and how important principles are. Um, and then to, to have that situation uh, in Afghanistan where really the lives of women and girls are uh, just going to to uh, regress quite quickly and, and uh, quite badly is something that uh, goes against um, that that kind of doctrine. Can I just? I want to come back to ISIS K and the relationship between uh, the Taliban and ISIS K, and even the nature of uh, you know the extent of unity within the Taliban. But but just on the question of American prestige and as you described it, then you know potentially the emergence of a of a new Doctrine that is uh, that that is um, post nation building and post uh, kind of transnational terrorism suppressing or, or, or fighting. You, you call that uh, perhaps a switch to uh, to a focus on great power rivalry. I guess is that what you're saying? And if if we view it in those terms, I mean, what are the other significant powers in the world making of what the US has just done? Because Hasn't it, in 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 a very real sense, rather defined the limits of its own power now um, by basically throwing its hands up in the air and walking away? 
I mean, it was obvious that it was bogged down uh, in in Afghanistan, but uh, uh, China is now uh, looking at at, uh, at this and and thinking about America's appetite for any further military actions. It will have its eye on that in relation to Taiwan. Uh, the uh, Russia may be also looking at it. Uh, there's, you know, it's been claimed before, for example, that um, when Obama failed to enforce the red line in Syria, that this emboldened the Russians in the Crimea and that it emboldened China to uh, establish islands in the South China Sea. Do you think those strategic decisions are or, or, or critiques are being made by America's Rivals? Yeah, that's a great question, and one uh, a lot of us uh, academics on on Twitter and beyond have been debating uh, over the past couple of weeks, but even years, as you mentioned, because uh, it was President Obama that really pushed hard against this idea that American credibility was on the line when he decided not to intervene in Syria and uh, when that last-minute deal was struck over uh, Assad regime surrendering chemical weapons and Russia brokering that and then uh, obviously there being no need for a humanitarian intervention that uh, um, Obama at first set out uh, would be warranted um, had there been a mass use of chemical weapons against Syrian civilians. But then, yes, the, the, the sort of arc that you alluded to around, you know, this being kind of contemporaneous and, and uh, uh, kind of happening around similar time when we see uh, upheavals uh, in um, Ukraine that lead then to illegal annexation of Crimea and, and the war in Donbass and so on, um, kind of being seen as U.S. being weak or, or China's growing uh, assertiveness in uh, especially South China Sea being, again, part and parcel of this sort of causal uh, chain, as some have portrayed it. I would potentially uh, push back against some of this because I, I think we need to probably separate two concepts, or at least that's what we do uh, in academia with uh, what credibility is and what reputation is. So reputation theory would say that basically you need to double down in Afghanistan and everywhere else because your adversaries seeing you basically withdraw in such a messy way uh, are are seeing basically the, the kind of end of American empire, uh, your inability to fight wars, uh, to win wars uh, uh, even, and, and that this ultimately is very damaging. Those who are proponents of U.S. credibility theory would say, well, actually, this is a good thing that the U.S. did. It couldn't go on, as you said, four administrations, 20 years later, uh, only to have the same sort of situation that you had uh, back in, in late 2001 with the same uh, uh, people in power that you deposed back then. And they would say that for U.S. credibility, in this sort of setting of great power rivalry, it is important to keep focus on what U.S. vital national interests are. And um, that basically uh, Afghanistan has never been a vital U.S. interest, that those interests now relate more to what's happening in the Indo-Pacific, being the, the kind of geo strategic uh, uh, geographical term of the day. And that basically 
pouring money, pouring tension uh, into into Central Asia maybe isn't the wisest way to uh, use your resources. And again, uh, it doesn't make you a very credible actor. So those are the kind of debates that are being held. Um, But now the question is, what is going to happen in Afghanistan moving forward? We know that China has been one of the first ones to basically try to uh, uh, do outreach with the the Taliban. We also know that obviously what happens in Pakistan is hugely important and of uh, uh, significant implications for uh, the situation in Afghanistan. Pakistan has been falling into China's orbit. So there is this also idea that uh, basically US by pulling out of Afghanistan is potentially leaving that space to its uh, major uh, uh, competitor, to it basically to the only credible peer competitor that it has in the world today, and that is uh, the People's Republic. So I would just like to, as any academic would, uh, I would just uh, leave it leave it there. I wouldn't uh, necessarily say that uh, you know uh, uh, either of those sides are are quite wrong, but I think we need to take things. Um, as, as uh, they are in, in this sort of context of, of being pretty dynamic and that there are um, some credible and, and uh, persuasive arguments on both sides. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, absolutely fair enough to say that it's certainly too early to tell on, on those two options, as, as it often is in, in, uh, in, as events unfold and there are many, many dynamics in play. Let's take a quick break and come back in just a moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Karen, just before the break, Garana was talking about uh, the possibility of uh, of China coming into this space that the US is leaving. I suppose that's uh, that's definitely one of the strategic considerations. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Is that uh, that's something that's being discussed in the in Australia's defence establishment? Yes, I think the impact on other geostrategic relationships involving China, involving Russia, involving Iran, and also Pakistan, because there are plenty of people talking about the role that Pakistan has played. And, of course, historically, the major powers have been very reluctant to tackle Pakistan head-on, which, you know, it has been a key player all the way through this. Pakistan's security forces have long been involved with insurgent forces in Afghanistan. And, so and let's not forget everybody... that, 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 sorry to interrupt, but let's not forget when, when Osama bin Laden was finally got to, he was in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. 
Correct. That's right. So I think, you know, there are a number of questions that we can't answer yet about the implications, but there will be implications for all of those relationships. And the major powers are clearly watching um, US's reputation and credibility in in relation to what's just happened. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that that there are these, you know, already these sort of two schools of, of view that are being set up as rivals to each other. And I wonder why it can't be an issue of both credibility and reputation, because um, you can, I think, you can argue that the United States ultimately had to get out of Afghanistan, that you can't stay in another country forever. But there's still a question about whether the manner in which that was executed was the best way both in the recent past and going back over the the last couple of years at least, you, you know, if you look at uh, what Donald Trump's administration started, they gave away an enormous amount in setting up those talks with the Taliban and freezing out the Afghan government, which again reinforced its sort of sense of a puppet status that the wrong people had been installed with US interests foremost and not the interests of traditional culture and history and um, governmental structures in Afghanistan. So, you know, yet again, it was the US projecting its ambition and its interests there. So you had the, Donald Trump's administration uh, reaching an agreement with the Taliban that legitimised the Taliban for a start and gave it the status of a government. That's very helpful when a when an organisation is still mounting an insurgency to have that legitimacy. They then uh, negotiated the release of 5,000 or so Taliban prisoners uh, with little concern for the views of uh, of the allies, including Australia, who had strong views about that because there were people among them who'd murdered Australians in those green on blue attacks. And they set a deadline of May of this year initially for withdrawal. I mean, the minute you set a deadline, and having negotiated, not gained anything much, where, where were the conditions for women and girls? Where were the conditions of ongoing human rights preservation Whatever you might think of undertakings the Taliban gave, you know, surely they should have at least attempted to secure some kind of undertakings that a Taliban government would be held to, and they didn't. And then the Biden administration came in, and instead of starting with a clean slate and saying, no, we're not going to, to do that, here's, here's the way we're going to do it, they accepted those terms. All they did was change the deadline, and they chose a symbolic date of September 11, which was going to be at least as symbolic for the Taliban as for the United States. So surely that was an incentive for the Taliban to move quickly to be in government either on September 11 or before. So while I accept that, that all the, you know, our, our government and the US government have said that there wasn't intelligence to suggest it would happen so quickly, the conditions were set for it to happen quickly. So I think a lot of things were done that could have been done differently. Clearly, clearly the evacuation was appallingly bad. Yes, they got a lot of people out, but the cost was very high. And so to suggest that it's, it's only one or the other reputational credibility, I think is not, um, not the way that this necessarily should be assessed. And it just goes to the, again, this issue of, of trying to put black hats and white hats on people in Afghanistan. There's this constant historical attempt to categorise things as good or bad, right or wrong, black or white, when it's a complex country, the, the tribal allegiances, the history, the governance arrangements are all complex and uh, there's just been a general sense of a, of a lack of understanding of that and we've seen it play out in the last couple of weeks in a particularly stark way in the way that evacuation was managed. It, it's a really good point you make and, and you, the point particularly about um, uh, protecting uh, credibility 
um, with even within the, uh, the the broad policy directions that the US wanted to take, uh, because it seems like the way it was done in the end did, ironically, did maximum damage to US credibility within the context of a departure, whatever that was going to be. Uh, they did it in a way that was quite damaging. And then on top of that, it was maximally damaging for the Afghan people. Uh, well, there's, which there's still, sorry, I was just going to say, there's still this circular logic being applied that fails to acknowledge that, that the actions that were taken have consequences of their own and a momentum of their own. So where, where the pre- president says, oh, well, um, you know, the, the soldiers all laid down their weapons and gave up and, you know, somehow it's their fault, they'd lost 70,000 people you know, in the Afghan National Army, they fought and fought and then they did what Afghans have historically always done. They took a hard look at their interests yeah. and their ability to resist any further and they made the decision that they couldn't resist any further. So, you know, the US did set the conditions for that to come about. They withdrew contractors that were involved in the maintenance of the military equipment. Uh, they, they set the conditions that made it extremely difficult and, and ultimately Afghans do what Afghan did what Afghans do, which is say, well, here are my interests. I'm I'm given two terrible choices. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with the people that are gonna still be here. And that's what they did. So the logic was just absent any understanding that the decisions that the US and, and our government and others have made have contributed to the circumstances of this. And somehow, you know, the people were being blamed for things that were created by external forces. Yeah. And maybe Mark on that very quickly, I, I completely agree with Karen. I, I think what we haven't really touched on or, or mentioned yet, um, I mean, in this whole obviously mismanaged withdrawal, um, we history books will be written on this, whether as, as Karen said, uh, deadlines should have been sim- symbolic or in line with actually some strategy to do it in a way that you do achieve some sort of peace with honor, right? To try to save face just a little bit and not to kind of race towards a deadline. But also these, you know, um, the the reports that the Biden administration had some intelligence that was alluding to the fact that things could get really bad really fast, right? And the fact that now um, there has been blame pinned on the Afghan army when we know from Afghanistan papers or we've known for two years already that uh, this war has been sold to the public in a way that basically uh, uh, just tried to to uh, hide the extent of corruption and, and just the uh, inaptitude of Afghan government to keep it together because of the levels of corruption. And really then that question of the Afghan people, so regular people who... Um, you know, obviously, just like any other human being have to think about the well-being of their families, of their loved ones, whether they would switch allegiances and trying to pin the blame now on the Afghan soldiers for defecting or for not putting a stronger fight. I mean, that's something also that, again, um, maybe got a bit missed in in that whole discussion, Um, just that whole idea of they should have fought harder um, and at the same time having their president flee the country. It's 
again just showing the 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 sort of story that has been sold not just to the american public but to the international publics and um i was as someone who spent some time now uh in europe this year quite astounded as well the extent to which european uh countries so european allies have been scathing of the us administration and the extent to which this has presented uh, again uh, a kind of a new crisis in transatlantic relations as well urging biden to extend the deadline or not to to withdraw at all and then you know not really knowing what the the plan b would be um it it is a, a a very uh, a messy affair as as is it unraveled but again just um shows you um the 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 interest and the various stakeholders uh in the mix because ultimately it wasn't just the united states this was the first time nato actually was employed for a military intervention the first time article 5 of the north atlantic treaty was um was was basically evoked um for a military intervention Yes, well that uh, that military departure um that the negotiations that uh, happened with the Taliban which uh, as Karen says as you both said uh, you know uh, went a long way to uh, legitimizing the Taliban treating them as the government even before they were the government around the back of of the uh, the Afghan government. Um that's one thing and that was an extraordinarily uh, you know critical uh, moment in this in this whole withdrawal process. Um but now we see in the last few days that uh, the Taliban are rolling through the Panjshir valley they they've taken the capital of that region that's a critical area where uh, the Taliban had uh, had uh, struggled for control even back in between 96 and 2001 when they were in power the first time this time they are meeting less resistance but they they are armed with US equipment that they have inherited uh and there's a there's a, a a terrific piece in the in the times of london today um uh which you know uh, a reporter talks about watching this um this uh, rebel fighter being taken away for interrogation and who knows what fate and he's cuffed with american handcuffs um that the taliban fighters have amongst their equipment it's uh, you know the symbolism of it is is quite striking. One of the other things that uh um has been said uh, about it uh, going back to your point about about the point that both of you made about the um uh the Afghan National Army and and other people uh other senior officials abandoning their posts. Uh and this is a point that Saad Moshani made uh, uh the the head of the Tolo media agency made on a terrific four corners I saw last night. Um is it once Ashraf Ghani the president abandoned his post it just had a cascading effect and it absolutely eviscerated morale in the um in what remained of the state apparatus and uh Mosheni even went as far as to say that so many people in in positions of power and responsibility simply left went home ran off that there was anarchy and the Taliban at that stage he was saying had agreed at least in the first instance not to enter the city but virtually had no choice because chaos was ensuing it's a it's an extraordinary uh extraordinary situation of disorder one that David Kilcullen in the same documentary referred to as a clusterfuck and he talked about the need for uh, or the understanding that the US were going to provide 
air support uh, for those, of, you know, for the final stages for the evacuation and the like, none of which, uh, none of which emerged. Karen, you've written about uh, the, the intelligence that, that Australia had uh, in terms of uh, its predictions. Angus Campbell, the chief of, chief of Defence Force, told an ANU conference only yesterday that he was absolutely surprised at how quickly Kabul fell, um, and indeed said that uh, the the uh, you know that. Well, I think you've written this as well that um, the uh, Defence Intelligence Organisation briefing to uh, Peter Dutton, the Defence Minister, had talked about months rather than days. So this is a, a, a colossal intelligence failure all round, isn't it? Yes, and it goes to this point about um, the way these assessments have been made, the the quality of the intelligence, the frame through which these things are viewed and the presumptions made about the way things are going to go. So the intelligence that was delivered to the government within a few days of Kabul falling, which was which occurred on the 15th, Sunday the 15th of August, was that Kabul would likely fall between now and Christmas. So that instantly created the sense that it wasn't immediate, it was later. Now, it did happen faster than almost everyone expected, but I was tracking open source intelligence on that Sunday morning and it was clear then and had been for a few days that that provincial capitals were falling quickly and on that day certainly it was happening very, very fast. You could see from people posting on Twitter right on the ground in various provincial capitals how quickly they were moving and they were moving from the north, from from the east, all the way around from the south and coming in on Kabul. And they and took to the, the Bagram point, Air Force Base. Uh, yeah, which the US had evacuated on yeah. the 2nd of July. Again, another decision that people say, why was that taken when you when when the Taliban was going to need access from the north to to be able to capture Kabul and move in and and create the momentum? They they employed a very clever strategy, um, which I would venture they had some help in developing um, from maybe across the border to the east, and they they picked off provincial capitals. They targeted the forces, the vulnerable forces local forces in those capitals and then they created momentum where word spread and then the president runs um, which was a you know I would say a supreme act of cowardice and that goes to the point that these things have momentum of their own again that that individual decisions leadership and decisions like that have consequences and create momentum and you can go back to Australia's decision early in the year to pull out its embassy from Kabul in May. That annoyed very much the Americans because it was creating momentum. And you can still have your criticisms of the US timetable, and, and I've made them, but, you know, they were then angry that, that that we had taken a unilateral decision that could create a momentum and, and did. It made people nervous. It sent a message that things were not stable and secure in the community, and that can ultimately benefit the people seeking to create more instability. So these decisions and choices all do matter. and. Uh, and there was intelligence, but it wasn't accurate enough, and there wasn't a sense of clearly of hang on a minute, what if there was no what if scenario? What if it's the worst case and it happens right now, rather than in three or four months' time? How are we going to handle it? And the evidence thus far is that there wasn't that planning and preparation, and certainly the evacuation that was undertaken was done on the fly, um, very much a scramble in terms of identifying who should get out, how they would get out. And it's it's inexplicable to me that there wasn't um, a better preparation for all of those scenarios 
than than we've seen. And maybe maybe more will be revealed. There's supposed to be a Senate inquiry coming. I think that's a good thing to hold at least our government agencies accountable for what they did. Certainly people on the ground did amazing work. I, I know that from a number of agencies and that's can I ask you, Karen, sorry to interrupt, Karen, but can I ask you, did you have a sense, uh, talking about that sort of contemporaneous assessment of, of events as they were unfolded, did you have a sense, as I did, that there was a kind of a two-speed response from Australia, which, you know, initially uh, we had the Prime Minister saying things like, we won't get everyone out, that's just a reality, or I can't remember the exact words, but it was a kind of a, an almost a defeatist attitude that he said during a press conference. There was a lot of pushback about that. It was extraordinarily um, controversial. And uh, as uh, those final days, you know, uh, approaches, those final uh, 24 hours, 48 hours um, accelerated, it seemed like Australia's efforts really stepped up. We got flights in there and we, we got a number of people out. And it felt to me like a lot of that was done at the very last minute, things that could have been done, which is, I guess, where you were going. But it was almost like there was a political assessment made by the Morrison government that it needed to be seen to be a lot more constantly. Urgent. So there was the fast and the slow. There was the the fast in the sense of we need to be seen to be doing something. We need to be participating in this evacuation, and they were participating. But the slow bit was we're going to be really careful about who we uplift. Um, we're not going to compromise our checking procedures. And there, there's criticism that can be made about the failure to speed up those processes earlier in terms of people to whom we owe an obligation, like interpreters and security guards, the people who worked for Australia. A, a lot of those people have been left behind. People who were issued short-term visas have been left behind. So there will be questions asked about whether that was done fast enough and whether there was an unmatching set of of, of actions, the, the public appearance of um, getting people out, and certainly we got out 4,100, the government says, but underneath a very, very choosy approach to who we got out. Now, you don't want open slather for sure, but but there's a question about whether there could have been um, somewhere in the middle of that, that that made sure that more of those people got out than, than did, and I think those questions will need to be asked. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be interesting to see what that inquiry is able to uh, to uncover and the extent to which we'll ever know about some of the uh, some of the intelligence and some of the communications that occurred around that critical time. Uh, we are out of time. I know, Grana, you have to be somewhere else. So um, thank you very much to both uh, Grana Gurdjieff and Karen Middleton for being with us on Democracy Sausage. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that is Democracy Sausage for this week. So until next week, ciao. 